you'd like uh, out in the back. Um, but yeah, you can follow along with us in that. But the first thing that we learn as we approach God in prayer is that prayer is communal. And I don't know, maybe some of you had this experience this week. So last week, I gave a message about what we're going to be doing over these next few months in, in asking Jesus to teach us to pray. And so, I, and I gave you some homework last week, which was to, to read through some of the resources in the booklet. And I actually gave you homework last week to, to take time this week, maybe in the morning, and just go into a closet or go into some place where you can pray the Lord's Prayer. And, and so maybe some of you guys said, okay, well, I'm going to have my prayer time. I'm going to do what Pastor Dan said to do. Probably not many of you, but some of you might have. And, and you're like, okay. And for some of you, I know it is hard to get alone, right? I mean, I started, this, started studying for last week's message, a sermon on prayer. It was the worst week to do that because I knew I was going to be praying on prayer, but I was traveling because it was holidays, right? And so I'm literally in at my sister-in-law's house I'm in a house that is filled with children. In every bedroom, there are children. And when I leave the bedrooms, there's children everywhere. And so I literally am like, oh man, I'm, pray I'm preaching on prayer this week. If there's ever a week that I need to be praying and on my knees in prayer, it's this week. And then I look at my situation and I'm like, there is literally no place in this house I can be at. And so I literally had to do what Jesus said. I literally had to go find a closet. Because I had to keep, because you know my daughter, Noemi, she will find you. <laughs> and, and some of you guys know this because you're parents of little kids and you know this. I mean, I've talked to moms who've said the only time I get time to pray is when I literally lock myself in the bathroom. So you guys who are now teenagers or older or you know, adults and you're like, that's why my mom used to lock herself in the bathroom. That's probably why. She just, she just needed that time. That alone time. And so, and so I know for some of you, so, so some of you, maybe this week, you found, you carved out time and you said, I've got to get alone with God. Pastor Dan told me to. And so you looked and you hunted for, where can I be alone? Where can I be in solitude? And you've carved out a spot and you found it and you're like, I'm all by myself, alone, no distraction, no other people. And you get down to pray and you say, well, Pastor Dan taught me to pray. He told me I should pray the, the Lord's Prayer. And you get there and the first word you pray is our Father, our, our Father, and you're like, our, man, it took me, took me an intense amount of time and energy to find a place where I could be alone, and the first thing I pray is, I'm not alone. The first thing I'm taught to pray by Jesus when I come to God in prayer is to recognize that there's a communal, not a solitary, but a communal aspect to prayer, and and the idea is, I mean, now, listen, Jesus prayed at times, my father, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? He, he prays, Father, take this cup from me. So he prays an individualized personal prayer. But when Jesus teaches us to pray, when he says, this then is how you should pray, the first thing he teaches about when we come to God and we approach God is that when we approach God in prayer, we must recognize that we approach God primarily communally. And the thing is, when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we talk about prayer, we often so much just focus individualistically. We see these as personal, individualistic disciplines. 
if you read any of, and I know some of you guys, I don't know what your backgrounds are, but some of you guys might be here today because you're seeking spirituality. And you might be here today because you're thinking like, I've read and I've heard of the spirituality, and a lot of modern spirituality, particularly modern spirituality that kind of comes through some of the Eastern or New Agey teachers, a lot of modern spirituality, if you read books on modern spirituality, you go to conferences, a lot of it is so individualistically focused. It's so, to be honest, it's so selfish. It's so about having my, you know, cup full. And it's so about having my needs met. And it's so about making my petitions before God. And a lot, and I'll tell you, a lot of spirituality that will, you'll come into contact and a lot of spiritual teachers that, that will seek to lead you will be talking about how can you be fulfilled through prayer? How can you be uh, enlightened through your spirituality. And one thing the Lord's Prayer does to us is it reduces within us. Jesus teaches us that when we approach God in prayer, in a sense, we reduce the individual in us. In a sense, when we go to God in prayer, that first word, our, the Westminster Confession, for example, teaches the word our reminds us that when we pray to God, we pray with and for others. So it doesn't matter that you're solitary in your room. It doesn't matter that you might be alone with God. You are not alone. You are, you're coming as part of, if you're a Christian, you're coming as part of the body of Christ, part of the bride of Christ. And that doesn't end when you're alone. Pastor Ray Pritchard writes this about prayer. He says, first of all, when you say our Father in heaven, you are admitting that you do not pray alone. The Lord's Prayer is not a private prayer. The words I and me are nowhere to be found. So when you come and you pray the Lord's Prayer, as he says, you are admitting that you are not the only one in the world who has a concern to bring to God. To begin with the word our means that you are in a fellowship and a community of God's children around the world. But this is an important insight because it is very easy to become me-oriented when we pray. But when you pray, Our Father, you're confessing that your problems are not the only problems in the world. You're admitting that there are millions of people around the world who have concerns just as great as yours. To pray like this imparts a bigness and expansiveness to your prayer because it includes all of God's children everywhere. When we pray, Our Father, as a congregation, we cease to be individuals coming to church with our own particular burdens. Instead, we become part of a family with a common heritage and shared values. And that family of brothers and sisters is even more decisive than a biological, excuse me, than a biological family. It's a family created by new birth and made possible by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, our redemption. That's what I mean when I say the Lord's Prayer is communal. Not that you always need to pray it with other people. But as you approach God in prayer, you recognize, you come humbly and recognize, I do not come Though I might be alone, I did not come by myself. So, so one of the things that might help you to pray, uh, there's like a little five-minute clips on uh, Right Now Media that a church subscribes to, and you can, you can watch some of the videos through that if, you, if you'd like. Um, on the IFR, one, one of the, the things that he was teaching as you go through, the, um, through this prayer is 
to, to consider as, you, as you're alone with God, as you're praying, is to consider as you're approaching God, who am I praying with? You know, he said, this pastor who's giving this teaching says, think about who is your R, right? As, as you're approaching God, you're, you're not just praying by, on your, uh, by yourself. You're, you're coming with others, even if they're not in the room with you. So he says, so your R might be you're coming and approaching God on behalf with and praying with your family. Or you're coming and approaching God on behalf with and you're praying with the, your church, your local church. Or it might be you're coming to God and you're praying with on behalf of, of other Christians and their plight in the world, or I could stand even through prayer. It could be one of the ways where I identify and stand with Christians in the persecuted church, right? So, so as you're coming to God in prayer, the point is that we're reducing, in a sense, we're reducing our own importance of ourself because Jesus taught another place, to the one who loses their life, that's the one who finds their life. The one who holds on to their priorities, the one who holds on to that glorification, that exaltation of self, that's the one who actually loses their life. And so this is, this is the first step in coming to prayer is, is that prayer is communal. So when you pray, identify your R. Who are you praying in concert with or in connection to, even if you're praying in solitude? The second thing, and and the most important thing I'd say in these four words, the second thing that we're going to look at is not only is prayer communal, prayer is relational. I don't know if there's any way for me here to express this to you other than just appealing to you and appealing to God on our behalf that God might impress upon you the love and the grace that he has toward you if you're his child that he has as a father to you. We learn that in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, our Father. The shorter catechism that I have in this booklet for you, Martin Luther's shorter catechism, says, what does this mean? And the answer is, with these words, I think I have this on the slide there, John. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe, tenderly invites Martin Luther, if you know anything about Martin Luther, you, you, you know that sometimes his words were not tender. And, but when he's meditating on these words, our Father in heaven, he says, man, listen to this tender invitation of God. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father and that we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children, ask their dear Father. The foundation of prayer is that prayer is relational. Prayer is not propositional. It's not, that's, that's why I have a hard time preaching prayer. Because when I preach, I'm, I'm speaking to you in propositional ways. I'm, I'm speaking to you about truths about God. But, but, but what, what, what I'm praying the Spirit will do is take these propositional truths and make them relational truths. Because God is not a proposition. God is not an argument. God is God is. He's not only a person, God's our Father. Everything else that comes in the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see at the end of the service today, I'll I'll just kind of pray in that way, everything else comes from this relationship that we have with God. So later in the Lord's Prayer, there is petition that is made, but the petition comes from that relationship. Later in the Lord's Prayer, there's confession that is made, but that confession comes from that relationship. 
Petition and confession and all else you might do in your spiritual walk means nothing if God is not relating to you, if you're not related to God as Father. Jesus, when he prayed, now in, in, in this verse in, verse in Matthew, uh, Matthew was originally written, the, the Gospel of Matthew was originally written in Greek. So the word here in the prayer is pater, the Greek word for Father. Um, but most scholars believe that when Jesus prayed, he routinely prayed in, in what would have been his heart language, Aramaic, and would have prayed the word Abba, Abba. Kind of sounds like Chinese Baba, right? Like, it's close. Abba. Uh, in Mark, for example, in Mark 14, 6, or 30, 36, Jesus is praying as he prays here in Matthew, and, and maybe Mark was written to more of an Aramaic community, so Mark includes, Jesus prays, Abba, Father. Um, Paul, the reason why scholars believe that this is the way that Jesus routinely prayed was because it was shocking. It would have been shocking to the Jewish apostles that Jesus would have prayed this word of... So, so I have a cousin who... I call my dad, Dad. It means actually sometimes I call my dad... What do I call my dad? I don't ever call him Bill, but I call him, call him Dad. Hey, Dad. But I have a cousin who calls his dad Father. And it always weirded me out. He calls his dad father. And, and that's a little bit different. It, it sounded weird to my ears because it, was, it seemed like too formal for that sort of relationship. And, and Jesus does the opposite. And, and many scholars believe that, that, that the, the apostles were just blown away that Jesus would use this term, not, not to go before God in heaven. God, God had been called the father of the Jewish people before. But no one ever called him Abba. No one ever went to God and said, Dad. Hey, Dad. And so the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.15 and in Galatians 4.6. The Apostle Paul speaks of this intimacy, this word he gets from Jesus, and he says, look, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Talking to Christians, you've been released from slavery. God is not a taskmaster. You've been released from that. You've received the spirit of adoption as son, by whom we cry out, Abba, we cry out to God, Dad, my Dad, my Dad. He says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, our Dad. Uh, Paul Miller, I've been reading this book called uh, The Praying Life by Paul Miller, and he talks about these scholars who say, they, they says the logical is like this. Um, I think there's a, there's a, I think this is on here. Maybe not, I'll just read it. The logic goes like this. We know the word Abba because it so burned itself on the disciples' minds, they were stunned. No one had ever spoken to God so intimately before that when they told the Greek Christians about Jesus, they carried over the Aramaic Abba into the Greek translations of the Bible. That's what Paul does in Romans and in Galatians. This so shocked Paul that, the, that he used the Abba in both Romans and Galatians. Translators have continued the pattern even today, so that when, no matter what language translation is in, like English, you can see that word Abba in your English translation. And the point is, this was radical. That they understood God not just being as this father out there, but as a dad. I uh, shared with you before, um, there's only really been one time, I, I became a Christian uh, mid-high school, didn't grow up in a Christian family, nominally Catholic, basically, and... Um, so, so I, I came into Christ through conversion. I came into Christianity through, through dramatic conversion, in a sense. Not that I was like some sort of drug dealer before, but it was, it, if you knew me, it would have been dramatic that this atheist kid became a Christian. 
And so I never really doubted. I've, I've not really had huge seasons of doubt, but I had one, and it was before I think my second or my third year of university. I had a, about a month where I hit this just really oppressive, difficult season of doubt. I'd been working three jobs, didn't get any sleep. Uh, my girlfriend's like, hey, would you, would you read this book for me? I'm scared to read this book. It's like a book written by this atheist dude. And I was like, yeah, I'll read it. I'm thinking I'm strong, but I'm not even in my right mind because I'm working all this. And I started doubting my faith. And it wasn't a long season of doubt, but it was an intense season of doubt. And ultimately, ultimately, there's a whole bigger story to this, but ultimately, what broke in my heart over that season, what would actually brought me back in was just this idea that when everything was stripped away, when everything was stripped away, was God, Abba, in my heart. And I remember one night it came to a head and I just like wept. I just started weeping. Because to deny God and his presence in my life and his role in saving me and his relationship, the relationship that I had with him, would have been like denying that my mom is my mom. Right? What would it take for Grace, what would it take for you to be like, yo, High Punk's not really your dad. Right? High Punk's not really your dad. And you're like, but he's my dad, I know. Well, prove it. How can you prove High Punk's your dad? If I told you, do it right now, give me all the logical arguments, give me all the evidence, and I put you on the spot, and you said, well, I have a birth certificate, so what, that could be forged. I could break down every sort of logical argument, and at the end of the day, you'd be like, he's my dad, because I know he's my dad, because my spirit cries out, he's my dad. I know, you cannot lie to me and tell me he's not my dad. And that's what happened in that time and season of doubt, is when everything else was stripped away, when it was just me, was God there as my father with me? And, what, and I came to this point where I just weep, wept and I said, God, I have sinned against you because not that, not that doubt's a sin, but because how ridiculous is it for me to deny your presence as father in my life? So prayer is relational. God is father. And, and some of you, you say, well, God, I don't get it. I, don't, I struggle with it. What does it mean that God is dad? Because it might be my dad sucked. It might be that my dad wasn't any good, and you struggle with it? Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount paints a picture for us of what God as dad means. So he, he puts information into that bucket of what it means that God is dad to fill out the picture. So I'm going to do this very, very quickly, just going through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the type of dad that Jesus knew God our Father is. Right? Sermon on the Mount. First, he understood that God is, the first thing he says in the Sermon Mount is that God is a gracious father. You can put this one up there, John. Yeah, God is a gracious father. So at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when you love your enemies and pray for those who do you wrong, he says, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and unjust. So what kind of dad is God? God is the type of dad who blesses all these people who don't even care about him. And he says, when you forgive your enemies, you love your enemies, you're you're, you're being sons of your father, You're, you're emulating your father's character. That's the kind of gracious father God is. So he's not only a gracious father, 
This is the cool thing, because some of you guys had dads that were, pre were present in the house, but not really present. Right? Unattentive. Here's the cool, the second one. The second one, Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, God is an attentive father. He, he notices, and he looks, and he sees. He's an attentive father. Matthew 6, 3. He actually says this when he says about giving, about prayer, and about fasting, but I just used the one about giving here. It says, Matthew 6, 3, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So God is the type of father that watches attentively to what you're doing, and when he sees you doing something, he says, yes. He's not a detached father, he's an attentive father. Third, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he's a thoughtful father. Matthew 6, 7. So he knows he's a thoughtful. Uh, he's, he's, he's the type of husband that, that knows what his wife really wants for Christmas before she even has to tell him. Right? That's hard for many of us, I know. He's the type of father who knows what their kids need even before they ask, is what Jesus says. Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, don't heap empty praises like the Gentiles do, phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. The, the point Jesus is making is not to lead us to that question that I know you all have. If God already knows what I need, why do I even have to ask? Right? Sometimes we ask that weird question about prayer. Jesus' point in saying this is, God is an attentive father. He watches over you. He knows what you need. He cares for you. Third, or fourth, sorry, he's a providing father. I said a generous father here. He knows our needs and provides accordingly. Matthew 6, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. This is the whole teaching on anxiety that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And so he goes on to say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so God is this God, and the whole point of Jesus' teaching here is trust God as a providing, generous Father. He'll take care of you. The teaching before this is, look at the, the lilies in the field. They don't toil, but God clothes them. He arrays them better than Solomon in all his splendor. So he's a, he's a generous father. And finally, I don't actually have a verse for this, but it's, it, it comes through all of Jesus' teaching. He's a near father. He's a near father. The, the, when you see Jesus when he withdraws and when he, when he gets alone with God in prayer, you see this communion with God because God is near. Now, some of us have frustration in prayer because, to be frank, God's invisible. It's hard to see him, right? Like, it's hard to have a relationship with an invisible father, right? And some of us get frustrated that when we talk about a praying life, the emphasis is on us going to God in prayer, right? And we say, okay, why do I, what do I benefit? Why do I always have to go to God in prayer? Why can't God pursue me just once? 
Like, why, why do I have to always go and find time to spend with God? Why doesn't God, why isn't, why isn't me knocking on the door? Why isn't God coming and knocking on my door? And it's frustrated me for a long time. And I think having teenagers has helped me a little bit with this. Um, I have teenagers now, and I've learned I've had to be a father in a different way. And I, what I've learned with my kids, and I'm sorry, Aiko, forgive me, because she hates it when I talk about teenagers, so I'm not, not bringing her directly into this, except for I just did, sorry. <laughs> what, I've lear- what I'm trying to learn with teenagers is they don't really like it as a dad when I come knocking on their door saying, I have a conversation to talk to you about. Right? Amen? Teenagers? Amen. What, I find, what I'm finding and learning with my teenage kids is what I have to do is I need to go and just sit down on the couch by them. And I've been trying as a dad to try to put my arms around them and have just... And then what I try to do as a dad is not say anything to them. Like, not say, oh, I'm with you. But I'm learning, and I'm trying to learn, and I fail at it sometimes. I'm trying to learn that as a dad, I just need to sit there quietly next to them until they're ready to open up to me. Until they're ready to start telling me about their day. Until they're ready to start talking to me about their life. Until they're ready to start asking me questions. And it doesn't work well when I just go and shove my teaching down their throat. And what, I've, what that helped, what that at least maybe suggesting to me, as I think about this whole prayer thing that I've struggled with for many, many decades, is that maybe God is literally just sitting down next to me all the time. And he's literally just sitting next to me. He's revealed himself to me as a father, as an attentive, loving, gracious, thoughtful, generous, near father. And so when I actually turn to him and pray, it's not like I'm going and finding him. It's like I'm just resting in his arms and talking to him like my kids. I'm hoping my kids and I learn how to talk. But that's what I'm hoping happens. And so it's not so much that you need to carve out time to go find God. It's that God is in him we live and move and have our being. And this is what the Apostle Paul teaches. He's, he's here. He's near to us. Now, I do need to be careful here to, to, to be specific in how is God our Father. God is our Father. And God is not the Father of every person in the same way. God is revealed in Scripture as being a Father to us, primarily in two different senses. First, God is the Father of us all by virtue of us being his creation, being created in the image of God as human beings. In Ephesians, for example, chapter 3, verse 14, uh, God is our Father by right of creation. Uh, the Paul, Paul prays in Ephesians 3, 14, but for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inmost being. So there's a sense in which God is the Father of us all because God is the creator of us all because we are all created in the image of God. So there's that sense. But primarily in Scripture, that sense, is, that sense has been marred and it actually has been disrupted. And it actually has been, we, there's been a separation between our Father, God, by right of creation, and by ourselves through our sin. 
that Scripture teaches us that though God had created us in his image and created us all good and created us to walk with him in that garden and have relationship with him, that it's not that God turned away from us, but that we have turned and had turned away from God. That we neither worshipped him as God our Father nor gave thanks to him as God our Father, and we no, no longer came to him as God our Father, but that we turned away from him and we worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. And so in, a set, in, in that sense of God being our Father, yes, there's one sense in which we could say, well, God is the Father of all humanity, being made in his image, and he's the head of every family from whom, in, uh, every, every family. But we are estranged from our Father. In fact, we are like the rebellious prodigal child who told his father, give me my inheritance now. I want nothing to do with you. And we went to our own way. All of us have gone to our own way. And, and in doing so, we have estranged ourselves. We have severed that family connection to God our Father, and we no longer face God as a father in our fallen state of humanity. We don't face God as a father. We don't relate to God as God as a father anymore. In fact, the Bible teaches we now, we've exchanged, so we don't relate to him as a father, we relate to him as a judge. And because God is holy, he is infinitely holy, and he is perfect. And so whereas God created us to relate to him as a father, we have rejected him in that, and now we relate to him as a judge. And in relating to him as a judge in our rebellion and rejection of him, we are guilty before him. That's what the scripture says, so that all humanity made in the image of God, most of humanity, we have, we have trashed that image. We have turned for our father, and now we relate to him not as a father, but as a judge. But what, 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 what Jesus is teaching here, when he teaches us how to pray, is that we return to God, we return to God, and are able to relate to God again as father as we come through the satisfaction that he has given in his son. Jesus Christ. So for example, John chapter 1 talks about that Jesus was with God, he was God in the beginning, and that he left the glory that he shared with the Father, and he came and he dwelt among us. That's what we celebrated at Christmas a few weeks ago, that Jesus came and he walked among us, perfectly God, fully God, fully man. Why? So that he could be a perfect mediator, a perfect go-between, a perfect reconciler between holy God and sinful man. And that Jesus did this, and the Gospel of John says that as the light came into the world, we said to the light, we don't want it. Right? Like, like at night, when you would turn on the bathroom light at night, and your eyes say, ah! That's what we did when we saw the glory of Jesus coming and dwelling among us. We tried and we sought to extinguish that light. We, in fact, sought to eradicate ourselves of that light, and we, we, we in fact murdered and killed and sought to extinguish the light, the true light, the light that was the life of all man. But John says, to as many who did not seek to eradicate that life, but in repentance and faith turned and received, to as many received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children that are not born by flesh or blood, or of the will of man, but born of God. And so this is the primary sense, and in fact, this is the only sense that matters when we're speaking of how do we relate to God as Father. We relate as God as Father by right of salvation. 
Because we've already denied him by right of creation. And that's what that gospel story is. Part of the gospel story is humbly coming to God and recognizing, Lord, I, myself, I have walked away from you time and time again. I have turned to my sin time and time again. And Lord, please forgive me. I receive Jesus. And when we, as we receive Christ, he adopts us. As his children. What does it mean to receive Christ? It means two things. It means to receive Christ's person, and it means to receive Christ's work. It means to receive Christ's person. That means to actually see him for who he is, the Son of God. It actually means to see him in his work, in what he did. What did he do? Well, he took the penalty, like I said, God related to us as judge. Jesus stood in the gap and made satisfaction to God's justice while defending us as our advocate. That's what Christ has done. Nobody else could have done it. He's the only one who could have. So we receive both him in his person and him in his work. And John says, to as many who has received him, he gives the right to become children of God. See, I did not know God as my father growing up in Wisconsin. I had turned from him. I was raised in a very nominal, secular family. I didn't know him as my father. I knew that I, if, I, if he did exist, I was condemned in front of him because I knew I did not follow or give him honor. Yet when he revealed his son in me, when he came and, and through the sharing of the gospel from friends sharing that story of who Jesus is and what he has done in, in turning to him, I found life in him. And he became my father by right of salvation. If you're here today, and that's new to you, if you're here today, you don't know, you just heard that for the first time, I pray that today you might begin praying differently in your life because you might begin praying with the understanding that I am not in relationship to God by virtue of me just being here. I'm only brought into relationship with God by virtue of what he himself has done in sending his son, Christ, for me, for us, our Father in heaven. And finally, this prayer teaches us, this, this preface to this prayer teaches us that prayer is effectual. What does it mean? It means, it means that it matters. There's a reason why we pray to God and not to anyone else. The reason is, is because by virtue of, of, of God's exalted position as God. And John Piper speaks about this way. He says, God's fatherhood corresponds to his readiness to meet our earthly needs. His heavenliness corresponds to his supreme right to be giving worship, allegiance, and obedience. He, our father is in heaven. He's the majestic one, the only power that comes in prayer, the only hope we have in prayer, the only efficacy we have in prayer, the only thing that matters in prayer is not how strongly or how hard or how much we pray. It's by virtue of the position and the authority and the majesty of our Heavenly Father. Ray Pritchard explains, the pastor Ray Pritchard explains again, he says this, the phrase in heaven refers to heaven as the center of the universe and the seat of all authority and power and dominion and greatness. 
You are on earth and are therefore limited to this little ball of dirt floating around the sun in a little corner of a big galaxy called the Milky Way. And that galaxy is just one of the millions of galaxies in the universe so huge that we can't accurately measure it. So to say that we are on earth means that we pray from a position of weakness and comparative insignificance. But God is on the seat of all authority and power. Therefore, when you say our Father in heaven, you are proclaiming that he has authority and power to hear you and to help you when you pray. It's precisely because God is in heaven that he has the power to help you. So when we pray our Father in heaven, we're not just confessing that he's any father, but that he's Father Supreme. This petition, our Father in heaven, that God is communal. We share our reproach to God that he is relational, that he's Abba, Daddy, and that he's effectual because he has actually the power to hear and the compassion to hear our prayer and the power to do anything about it. This forms the the foundation for everything else we pray in the Lord's Prayer. John, you can put up that final slide. So so as we go through, I just want to, yeah, here it is. Think of how this is related to the rest of the Lord's Prayer. God, because you are Father in heaven, because you are majestic, supreme, transcendent, hallowed be your name, honor and glory and power and strength to you, our Father in heaven. You are Father in heaven. You are Father in heaven. You dwell in righteousness, justice, and peace. Therefore, let your kingdom come. You are Father in heaven. You have intimately and intricately created us. You know us. You are an attentive Father. And you know your plans for us. Therefore, Father in heaven, let your will be done. You are Father in heaven. You know our needs even before we ask. You're not like a dad who when the kid says, hey, can I have a piece of bread? You say, ha, 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 here's a stone. You laugh at it. That's literally Jesus' teaching. Sorry, that one wasn't original. That was Jesus. Because your Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Because you are gracious Father in heaven, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because you are strong and mighty Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation and deliver us, save us, redeem us from the evil one. It's how we approach God in prayer. In fact, let's, let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I pray on behalf of all who are gathered here. I pray on behalf of those who are here who, who, who would be your sons and daughters by creation but are now walking in, in, in separation and estrangement from you. I pray that today they would see that you can be their father once again through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what you have sent your son to do on their behalf that they might be saved. Our Father in heaven, I pray for us as a church body gathered that we may be a people of bold approach, that we may be a people that, 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 that see the new and living way that your son Jesus has opened up so that we might approach the throne of grace And that we might draw near with confidence. Because you've poured your spirit into our heart. 
Our spirit bears witness with your spirit, and by your spirit we cry out, Abba, Father, Dad. Lord, I pray that you might, as we go through these next weeks and months, teach us to pray, teach us to love, teach us to forgive, teach us to seek you, teach us to know you, teach us to relate to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Wow, that is setting us up for an awesome time to worship God together. And so why don't we, um, we're going to stand up in a little, little, little second, we'll stand, we're going to sing praises to Abba, Father, Daddy, God. We're going to exalt his son Jesus, who's made it possible for us to approach him. And, uh, and so our, our team up here is going to lead us just through singing, sing out, we're a singing church, so sing out together, uh, proclaim God's goodness to each other as you sing. Um, also, you see on the table here, um, we do celebrate, we remember, and we celebrate the Lord's work uh, every week together as a church. So we take what we refer to as the Lord's Supper together. It's a cracker, it's a cup, we pass around. The cracker represents the body of Christ, his life that he laid down for us, the work he did. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and to bring us together in, by, by virtue of a new covenant together into one family with him. If you are here today... Uh, this, is a, this is something we do together as, as Christians, as those who, who, have, who have received Christ by faith and have followed him in, in obedience through, through baptism. And so if you're here today and, and you're not yet a Christian, or if you don't know yet if you're a Christian, or if you haven't yet received, uh, professed him publicly through your baptism, we just ask you to pass those together. And, and if you're here today and you're, you're in one of those two camps, I'd love you to come and, and chat with me after service. We can either help you to understand what this faith is that we're proclaiming, or how you can profess and publicly through baptism. And so we'll just pass those along as the song's going on, and then we'll come back together after a couple songs and, and celebrate at the end of the service. Word and art 
Your will be done, our 
there is none like you. There is none beside you. Um, you've given us amazing grace. And um, in Jesus, while we were still sinners, um, you died for us so that you could conquer the grave and you could satisfy the wrath of God. We thank you, Lord, for giving us life and, um, and loving us like, um, like we can't imagine. Um, God, you are good. You are our faithful Father, and we thank you.
Amen. What a faithful God. What a great heavenly Father that we've been brought into relationship with through his Son, Jesus Christ. Not by any work that we have done, but by his work on our behalf. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks. He said, take this all and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Knowing that in less than 24 hours, he in fact would be offering his life for ours, the perfect for the sinful, to satisfy the condition of God's judgment against sin and to set sinners free. And so let's take and let's eat. Let's exult in the fact that it's not by our work, but be because of the work that he has done on our behalf. And then the same way after supper, he took the cup and blessed it and gave thanks. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. He told us he would not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he drank it anew with us in his kingdom. And so as we drink, we remember two things. That first, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's by his stripes that we're healed. And that someday he will return. He returned for his people, his bride, and we will feast with him in his kingdom. So we look forward to that day. Thanks be to God. Amen. And let's pray together as he taught us to pray. You can pray in the words as you know them, or we do have words up on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It will be done on earth. seated. Well, thank you once again for uh, joining us in this new year. Welcome to you all, and uh, good to see many faces back. And um, one of the things